Hello and welcome to this edition of Webinar Extra. Following our webinar on innovation in eye care, what's new in the guidance for professional practice, the fourth edition. And this is the time that we use to answer the questions that we weren't able to on the night. And today there's three clinical advisors presenting. It's me, Denise Voon, clinical advisor to the college. Pamri Bilku, clinical advisor at the college. And me, Daniel Hardman-McCartney, clinical advisor to the college. And let's get straight to it. So there was lots of questions on lots of different aspects of our guidance for professional practice today. But Daniel, can we start with whether consent is needed to pass on patient records for propriety purposes, such as to the NHS for a post-payment verification purpose? Great question to start off with. The simple answer is you don't need explicit consent to pass the patient information on for proprietary reasons with the NHS. It's part of your contract to do it and it's part of the terms of conditions that an NHS patient would accept you need to um, work collaboratively with the NHS to help them assess your records to validate any claims that you've made, particularly early retest codes, to show that any coding claims correspond with the case history and symptoms that the patient presented. Great, thank you. And can you just explain to our listeners what it, exactly it means by propriety purposes? That means the post-verification check to make sure that people aren't making fraudulent claims that don't correspond with the card. And then I guess if you get that correct, we're less likely then to get any reclaims that the NHS might make later on. Absolutely less likely to get claims rejected. And also it just keeps us in good practice of making it really clear on the record card to anyone looking at it at any point in the future why we've made a claim. And that actually is in the patient's interest and it's by their request. Absolutely. And that's just good record keeping anyway. And so another question that came up, which I thought was really interesting, was about dilation and if a dilation is clinically necessary and performed on the same day, what's the advice for driving? Is it the patient's responsibility to decide whether they're safe and legal to drive? Well, it's very important that if you do recommend a dilation, that you advise the patient, give the information they need about the amount of time it will take for the drops to wear off and that they don't drive until they feel they are safe. And um, it's up to the patient to ultimately decide when they are safe. But you you definitely shouldn't say that they are safe to drive straight away. You simply need to say that it can take X number of hours, normally four to six hours for the drops to wear off. And then they need to make the decision. Because remember, some patients, it may be six or seven hours. Some patients, it may be a lot less, but they need to make that call. So, Daniel, we actually have a patient tear-off pad for that, don't we? We do, and really nice practice is simply tear off that pad, give it to everyone so they've got all the information that they need to make the decision uh, about the eye drops and when they can drive. But also, for medical legal purposes, you you know what information you've given to them and it can be referred on in the future. And I think it's useful to note down on the record card that you have given that written advice as well. Absolutely. So we've got another question, Daniel, about diagnostic tests. So this relates to those screening assessments that are done prior to the site test. So can this be delegated? And if so, what level of uh, supervision is required? Yes, it's a really good question. So um, absolutely, um, diagnostic tests can be delegated to other members of staff with the appropriate training and supervision. That's a really important thing because all of these different tests are not protected functions on their own. But it, it's vital that the staff have had the right amount of training and also they know when they need to come and get you for the extra help and support. And maybe the training is refreshed on, on a regular basis. Thank you, Daniel. So we've got some questions for Denise now. Just so if I'm asked to provide a health assessment or give a second opinion for in a remote eye test setting, who's ultimately responsible for that site test? 
I think this applies to whether you do a remote eye test or eye examination or a face-to-face examination whenever you're asked to give a second opinion or you've been asked to do further tests. And the first thing that you would need to make sure that happens is that there is an appropriate transfer of care between one practitioner to the next. So it's very, very clear that who is responsible and who needs to take any relevant action. And if somebody is actually... Um, made a decision initially and you disagree with that, what would be the appropriate approach to ensure that you're acting in the patient's best interest? So I think that's a really interesting question and I think it does depend. So firstly, if you are responsible for that patient and you disagree perhaps with the practitioner before you, you are still responsible in that situation. So you need to act on what your professional judgment is telling you and what you think is in the best interest of the patient. It would then be useful if, if it it's possible to go back to the previous um, clinician and, and perhaps have a discussion about about any disagreements. Um, but it's really important that you, when you're speaking to the patient, that you remain professional at all times and that you don't dwell too much on any contradictions. There's a really good question here, and there are lots of questions about myopia, and so apparently my guess is one for you. Busy high street practices, you know, do they need to cyclo every child um, can you give us some background about cyclopedic refractions in children and when it's necessary? It's a great question and one that we get asked several times, but ultimately it's down to your professional judgment. Now, when it comes to myopia management, it's a, it's a treatment which is actually has a, a physical effect on the eye. And we know there are some studies which actually show it can help to reduce uh, axial length progression. So ultimately, that is the key metric or the first line outcome measure to determine whether the intervention is successful or not. So if you've got an objective way to analyse that, such as measuring axial length, that would be the gold standard, so to speak. But we are aware that there's these types of devices, such as biometers, are, are not universal. So there are alternatives which can be made, such as deriving axial length measures from cyclopedic refraction and K readings. Now, when you do this, ideally, this should be done at baseline and at then appropriate interval monitoring periods going forward. But and the important thing is, is that if you do undertake myopia management, if you're not able to conduct these tests or you don't feel they're clinically relevant at the time, you need to ensure that the patients and the parents are given the right information so they understand your clinical management plan going forward. So it's up to your professional judgment and deciding when they're conducted and what process that they are should be in place from the outset. But ultimately, if you are not going to be measuring an objective measure, that needs to be explained to the patient in that they are not going to be as accurate or as reliable compared to the objective measures. And as long as the patient consents, then you can, can then you can proceed on that basis. But ideally, where possible, axial length should be either measured directly or derived. So, um, as you say, either measured directly or derived. Does it have to be performed at every myopia management patient and at every opportunity when you see them? Ideally, this should be done, taking place at baseline because that can give you a measure from which you can determine treatment success. But ev- every patient will be individual depending on their age, the rate of progression, the type of intervention prescribed. It may not be necessary to do every follow-up appointment, but at a suitable point in time in the future so you can at least measure whether or not there is treatment success or otherwise. And then you can decide based upon that outcome what the next steps are. And, and at the other end of things, so you, all of the initial side of things, what about at the other end? Someone has a prescription coming to them at the practice. Um, can you recommend myopia management at that dispensing stage? I think ultimately when a prescription is given and you've got only access to that, that, that information or the, that data, 
I don't think there's sufficient information there to make a mind man decision. Because ultimately, looking at static set of readings in time without all the patient history, the rate of progression, and all the, the risk facts that may be present. So in that situation, the ideal situation would be to refer back to the original prescribing clinician to discuss with them whether or not that patient would benefit from mind management intervention. So there's a question here about remote consultations. And, and this question is... Um, Regarding remote consultations, including refraction done by one optom and then funders checked by another optometrist, is that okay? So our guidance is very clear that we think that a site test shouldn't be split up between two practitioners and that one um, practitioner or optometrist should remain responsible for the whole thing. Perfect. Thank you very much. It's very clear. And it's a new area, isn't it, which is a real challenge. Uh, there's a lot of unknowns about it and the guidance really is just an overarching you. Yes, it is. Absolutely. Um, and I think there's remote consultations have been used um, in other areas, but not so much in optometry. So it is a very new and evolving practice. And I think we're still learning about what would work in optometry. And on a related note, Dan, we had some questions about our changes to our guided professional practice where we use the terms sight test and eye examination. C could you explain the difference and, and, and what they mean in that context? Yes, yeah, so this is a really important point and, it, and it's quite a hot topic for a lot of our members. A sight test is used which is when it, which is as defined in law by the Opticians Act. So that means the ocular health assessment and the refraction. Very tight, narrow, the absolute minimum type thing. An eye examination is much broader. It could mean um, an an ocular health assessment, it might be a management assessment, it can mean a Hughes assessment, a MEX assessment, it's a much broader term. But confusingly, it can also mean a sight test, so the legal minimum bit of a sight test, with bells and whistles, OCTs, fundus photographs, uh, and, and lots of other bits. And what we've done in this version of the dance professional practice, we've used the sight test where it's specifically the minimum defined in law, and everywhere else where it could be either, we've used sight test or eye examination, so you can then apply the guidance depending on whether you're doing a sight test or an eye examination. But things to bear in mind, even though all of us optometrists and registrants are very specific on the different meanings of what each term means, the public are not, journalists are not, and the terms are often used interchangeably by industry and by the public, so we just need to be mindful of that. On a related note, Daniel, when it comes to conducting our examination, do we specify a, a minimum time that people should be spending to carry, carry this out? What, given the fact that there are now wider access to other diagnostic tests, what, what, how, how do we build that in together to ensure that we're making the patient is our centre of the care? It's a really good point. So the guidance professional practice doesn't, and it's never defined a minimum amount of time of what a site test should be. But we are very, very clear the site test should be long enough to enable the optometrist to conduct all the tests they need um, without an undue time pressure or without it being unsafe. Now, that may vary from practice to practice. I work in some practices which are up a long staircase. It takes longer to get up there. I have no support staff. I have to do all the diagnostic tests myself. Inevitably, the site test needs to be much longer in that setting than in another setting where there may be lots of support staff um, very efficient setup, waiting area right outside the room. So each practice will vary from place to place and each patient will vary as well. Someone with dementia or with additional needs may need longer for their eye examination. We're also very clear in the guidance that if you are concerned that you are not being given a sufficient amount of time, you must raise that as a concern 
with your employer and they will listen to that concern and then hopefully you can come up with a plan about how you'll manage the diary to um, give you enough time and ensure that patient care is put first. So thinking about time, what happens if you have a patient perhaps whose English isn't their first language and it is very, very difficult and how, how do you manage that in terms of translation and their services? Like where, where can you find a translator, first of all? Yeah, it's, it's a really good question and it's all about preparation, Denise. So we've added translation services in the guidance, not that it's a must, but you should, wherever possible, use translation services that are available. So a bit of detective work beforehand to find out what's available in your area. In some areas, that's funded by the NHS. Um, it, in other areas, um, it may be something that your practice is subscribed to. Um, but find out what what facilities are available and whether you can make the reasonable adjustment, um, be that for translation service, be that sign language interpretation, things that you can do. Because if it's there and it's funded, it would be a travesty not to use that to ensure that you've got really high quality medical translation um, to help you for your sight test. It makes it safer examination more comfortable for the patient and more robust for you. Pragmatically, it's not always possible. And we say good practice is that you shouldn't use a friend or a relative for translation, but sometimes it is inevitable and that's what you have to do. But good practice is that you have a medical translation service available whenever possible. So Denise, we touched upon the transfer of care earlier and uh, in, our, in our discussion. And there's some question relating to conducting additional tests once a site test is completed. For example, if a locum asks for a visual fields test and wants to transfer that to a resident, if they're no longer going to be back at that practice. What happens in that situation if they decline? How do, how do you resolve that issue? I think whenever you work at a practice or, or any practice really should have a protocol in place which details and outlines exactly this sort of situation when you have a locum or one practitioner who wants to transfer care to another I think where possible, ideally, it should be that an internal referral is done and there are internal referral templates that we have on our website which you can use um, and that care should then um, be transferred to the perhaps the resident optometrist, for instance. If they decline, there should be a process in place which then details what would happen to that patient. For instance, a locum might not ever return to the practice, so it wouldn't be quite right for that locum to have to come in just to, d to deal with them. But there needs to be something in place which tells you exactly what you need to do. We are aware that there are some sector resources as well for locums which can help to keep their log as well. So if there are locums out there who are working in that situation, then it'd be a good idea to make sure that they have a log of all the, the transfer of cares that they have that can ensure they keep on top of their patients going forward. Exactly. And good record keeping in these sorts of situations is essential. And if you're registered as a locum, you can find our locum pack on the website. And if you're not registered as a locum with us, do contact our membership team and they can get you a copy of that log and the materials for locums. Paramdeep, there's a question that you covered during the webinar about friends and family. And it seemed a bit strange. You had lots of questions about it. Tell us more about it. Not treating friends and family. Is that just emergencies or is that all healthcare situations? It's, it's a good question. And it's one not just for eye care. It's the entire healthcare setting. I mean, ultimately, when you're providing care to a patient, you want to be as objective as possible. Uh, what I mean by that is you're going to give the patient your full attention and that you're going to be conducting investigations that are appropriate for their needs and giving them advice in an objective way so you can ensure that they get the right care at the right time. Now, when it comes to testing friends and family or examining them or prescribing, ultimately it's all about making those healthcare decisions, so it applies in all areas, not just for prescribing decisions. But there's a distinction to be made between those that people that you know 
and those people are your friends and family. So th- th- there's a relationship I- question there, and that shouldn't be too difficult for people to decide whether that's the case or not. But um, ultimately, it's down to professional judgment. You can choose to conduct an examination of your friends and family, but having said all of that, you need to make sure there are robust processes in place that you make sure that you record that and the relationship that you have with that individual, and there's a method mechanism within the practice to ensure that it's being objective as possible. And I guess it avoids having those difficult eye examination questions over Sunday lunch with your 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 friends and family when actually you just want to be enjoying some time off rather than doing a follow-up consultation. That's right. It gives you the protection that you need that you can ensure that they get the right advice at the right time. But uh, as always, we're well aware that patients and, uh, or friends and family that you know will ask you for your advice, but ultimately you should defer them to uh, uh, their local optometrist to give them the right care that they need. There was a question about virtual care, Denise. Quite simply, can a sight test be conducted as a virtual examination? Great question. And just uh, for clarity, when we refer to virtual care, what we're talking about is when somebody, perhaps a technician or clinician, are performing certain tests such as an OCT um, or a visual fields test, and this is reviewed at a later date by somebody else. By contrast, a remote consultation is something done in real time when you have one practitioner in one place and perhaps the patient in another, but that's in real time. So that's the distinction between the two. Our guidance is very, very clear that a virtual um, examination can never be used to perform a sight test. And finally, we have a question for Daniel. So it relates to conducting delegated tasks And this one relates to drop installation. So ultimately, can that be delegated to a non-clinician if they've received sufficient training? Yeah, good question. So with sufficient training, a a support member of staff can instill eye drops in an optical practice. That's absolutely fine. You need to ensure they have sufficient training. You need to ensure you have the right governance in place and they know what to do in terms of patient information and informed consent to have the eye drops put in. One of the big changes, Paramdeep, actually, in this guidance is we've said that that may happen without the optometrist being on premises with the right governance. And that brings our guidance into alignment with that of the Royal College of Ophthalmologists and the Diabetic Eye Screening Service. So there may be situations where you may be out on your lunch break or not physically in the building when actually a support member of staff can instill those eye drops for you at the start of your clinic. Well, that's brilliant. And that was a really good roundup of all the questions that we weren't able to get to on the night. I mean, the guidance for professional practice is there and it's open for everybody. And it does highlight good practice for our optometry sector. So I really do urge all our listeners to become familiar with it and especially the new um, sections um, as well. Um, but I guess the only thing that we've left to say is thank you, Paramdeep. Thank you, Daniel. And thank you, Denise and Daniel. Yes, and thank you for listening to both uh, joining us for the webinar and actually listening to this podcast. And remember, if you do have any other questions or any specifics that you feel we've not covered or you'd like extra help, we have the clinical advice line where you can contact us on the web form or by email or by phone where one of the three of us would be happy to take your call and talk it through in more detail applied to your setting. Absolutely, and we'll see you all next time.